Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, where we produce narratives for social change. And I'm Bill Valerio. It's great to be together. I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And on today's show, we're going to dive in deep with Charles Santori. I try to create a problem for myself that I'm not sure I can solve. And that keeps you off balance. And in a way, it keeps you an amateur and you never become a professional. It's very dangerous to become a professional because then you can be a hack, especially when you've been in the business a long time. If you start to give out what you already know how to do and nothing more, it becomes redundancy. It becomes what's expected of you. And if you do what's expected of you, nobody cares about that. Nobody's interested in that. Santori is in his early 80s, and he's spent his entire life in Philadelphia, where he continues to work in the same studio he's had for more than 50 years. You have to surprise yourself in order to surprise anybody else. So in order to do that, you have to set the bar a little higher each time and see if you can, you know, make the jump. He started out as a commercial illustrator and then made the leap into illustrating children's books. You have to be insecure. If you're secure, you're smug. And if you're smug, nobody can tell you anything. You know, you can't learn anything. You have to be humble. You have to say, I've got a hell of a lot more to learn, you know, and try to be open to learn it, even if you're trying to teach yourself. So I never think of myself as a professional. I'm always an amateur. Do you call yourself an artist? No. I would never call myself an artist. No. To be called an artist is for somebody else to say about what you do. When you call yourself an artist, that's presumption, you know, as far as I'm concerned. You do what you do. You play the violin. You paint pictures. I paint pictures. Somebody else plays the violin. I'm not going to say, you know, that I'm an artist. Somebody else might say the violinist is an artist. He's that good or she's that good. But that's not for you to say about yourself. When, you know, when people call themselves an artist, I just sort of shrug and say, okay, you know, if that's what you want to call yourself, fine. You, know, you can buy a brush and call yourself an artist. So what you hope is maybe 30, 40 years down the line or 50 years down the line, somebody else calls you an artist when they look at your work. Well, here at Woodmere, we do consider Centauri to be an artist. Our retrospective brings together works from the early part of his career, and it shows you what he's working on today. We consider him an artist because his work has the ideas, the history, the emotions, and the visual sophistication that we look for in art. And right now, we're going to take you through parts of the exhibition with Charles Santori himself. And we're going to start with what made Charles Santori famous. In the 1970s and 80s, he did TV Guide covers. And Bill, tell us about TV Guide. Um, I was just a young child when (laughs) TV Guide was at its prime. Well, I was in my prime teen years for TV Guide. So I remember it. But for the younger listeners out there, what you need to know is that the magazine had almost 20 million subscribers a week. It was based in Philadelphia. It's part of Philadelphia culture. And it was owned by media mogul Walter Annenberg. Despite 
the tremendous circulation. It was a small format magazine. It could fit in your hands. And to make a big impact, the TV Guide editors decided they needed to take out big, large-scale, full-page advertisements in newspapers like the Philadelphia Inquirer, but the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and newspapers across America. They wanted to show that the journalists at TV Guide were addressing serious matters of public interest, even though the purpose of TV Guide was to let you know what was coming on TV on the handful of networks that existed back then. For the retrospective, we worked with Centauri to identify one such full-page advertisement that TV Guide placed in newspapers across the country. And the one we're about to hear about reminds us of Russia's most recent transgressions during the 2016 presidential election. And this was an example of one of the editorials about how the Russian intelligence could manipulate the American media, which is really laughable today because we're sort of going through the whole thing now. And this was during the Reagan administration. And so I decided to personify Russia as having this huge, cumbersome Russian bear sitting behind the TV set and manipulating like a puppeteer one of the American anchormen who's sort of generic looking, that kind of... Uh, type that they would always use as an anchor man. And the puppet strings are going through the TV to what would be the equivalent of a puppet stage. And they're attached to the hands and arms and neck and head of the anchor man. And the bear is wearing a collar with the hammer and sickle in the center. So it's a pretty strong image. One other thing I might point out is that the bear has long, sharp claws, and it's not a docile image. He could be dangerous. And Santori has a great story about what happened shortly after this ad ran for TV Guide and all the big newspapers at the time. He got a call from Walter Annenberg. He said the president, because Reagan was president at the time, loves that picture. And I said, great. It's great to know. And he said, yeah, he really loves that picture. And after the third time he said it, I thought, okay, and this is a donation I'm going to have to make. So I said, okay, you can give it to him. So I sent the picture off and they came and picked it up. And then about a month or so later, there's an annual show in New York, the Society of Illustrators annual show of things that have been done in the previous year. And so I sent in one of the reproductions and it was accepted for the show, but you have to hang the original. So I called the agency, you know, explained the situation that I needed the artwork back, and they said, we can't get the artwork. You know, the president has it. I said, I don't care. I need the artwork for the show. So they said, you're not going to get it. So I thought, well, you know, I'll call Walter Annenberg. He called me, so I'll call him. So I called Walter Annenberg, and his secretary got on and I explained the whole situation and she said, when do you need it? And I said, I could use it in a week or so because I need to get it framed. And she said, well, it's already framed. You know, we'll get it to you. And about a week later, she called me and she said, I'm sending it down with Mr. Randenberg's chauffeur. And a big limousine pulls up outside and, you know, I get the artwork. I sent it to New York. It was in the show for a month 
It came back. I called her. She sent a chauffeur. He picked up the artwork, took it back. And that's the last I heard of it for over 20 years, you know, because in the meantime, Walter Annenberg moved lock, stock, and barrel to the West Coast. Then he became the ambassador to England. Lots of stuff happened. And then he moved back to Radnor again. He came back. And one day I got a call from his secretary or whoever and said, we were going through his closets and we found this picture of a bear. She said, do you want it? I said, yeah. So that's how I got the picture of the bear back again. And what's great about that is that we have it here at Woodmere today. I hope you'll all come see it because it's an incredible work of art that carries with it a piece of our history. We have it on view together with other advertisements and covers that Santori made for TV Guide through the 1970s and 80s. Shows that you might watch and rerun online today, like All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Soap, Taxi. I would watch the shows, and they would send me, they meaning TV Guide, two, three hundred slides that were taken on set. And then I'd watch the show, look at all the slides, see what they sent me. Then I'd take maybe 20, 30 slides and have eight by 10 black and whites made of those slides. Just sort of tack them up on my drawing board. And what I decided was sort of a synthesis of, if it was a portrait, it wasn't a photograph. It was sort of a synthesis of the photographs. Sort of looked at it and did a drawing or a painting. We look at these TV Guide covers from the vantage point of 2018. They transport us back to another era, and we can see that that era was confronting a lot of the issues that we confront today. Soap featured one of the earliest gay characters on mainstream American media. These TV shows are complex figments of the imagination of American culture. Well, Jody, so you're going to get married, huh? Yeah, it uh, looks that way. Isn't that nice? Yeah. I guess that means you're not gay. No, Aunt Jessica, it doesn't. Hmm. You know, Jody, when we were younger, there was no such thing as homosexuals. Yes, there were, Aunt Jessica. The homosexuals go way back in history. Who? Alexander the Great was gay. Uh, Plato was gay. Plato? <laughs> Mickey Mouse's dog was gay? And right now we're going to hear two theme songs that for some of you out there who might remember from the Jeffersons and All in the Family. And like Bill said, from 2018, whoa. I mean, this would not fly on TV today. It certainly would not. And as we're about to hear from Edith and Archie Bunker from All in the Family, they're singing about the good old days, which feels like a little bit of deja vu, given what happened during the 2016 presidential election. I agree completely, and I can't listen to this music without it hitting me in the gut. Guys like us, we had it made. Those were the days, and you knew where you were then. Girls were girls and men were men. Mr. We could use a man like Clement Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare states. Every 
Everybody pulls his weight. Gee, our old loss sour and great. Those were the There's a lot there that's complicated that from today's point of view would be touchy. And so while we might look at Archie Bunker, who wants to turn the clock back to make America great, Archie Bunker, you know, can't do that because he lives in a society where he's confronted by the flaws in that point of view. The Jeffersons, well, you know, it starts out by telling us that they finally got a piece of the pie. Well, we're moving on. black working-class family that is suddenly living in upper-class Manhattan. And the humor has to do with the interaction between George and Louise and their neighbors, an interracial family, a man who works at the United Nations, and how their black culture interfaces with the white world around them. One thing I learned on my way up the ladder. Uh, that's that... another thing I'm sick of. Your way up the ladder. You've got your nose up so high you would need a ten-foot pole to pick it. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with being proud, Wheezy. Because I've done it all by my lonesome, the hard way. George, dear, I'm glad for your success, too. But let's not forget... You are still the grandson of a sharecropper, and I'm the daughter of a janitor. We are just plain folks. But see, I don't feel like no plain folks. Look, did you ever play King of the Mountain when you was a kid? No, that's right. You probably played just plain folks in the mountain. <laughs> but see, I played the real game, but only I was too small to reach the top. However, when I grew up, I found out that business is the real game, and out there, size don't count. Well, this kind of thing was funny with George and Louise moving up, but it was a reality, and that's what really makes it funny. We've all done that, you know, the Italians, the blacks, the Jews, and so forth and so on. We've all, that's what you do in America. You try to move up to the next step. One of the turning points in Santori's career is that he was given the opportunity to depict the Godfather, an iconic representation of this epic Italian-American family saga for the cover of TV Guide. We're hearing the music now, and that music, as much as the Jefferson's theme song and the All in the Family intro sequence, is embedded in my brain as a piece of the 1970s that I remember. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in South Philadelphia. Never saw two men hug and kiss, never, until the Godfather came out. Then they couldn't keep their hands off each other. All the gangsters started acting like, you know, characters from the Godfather. It was really funny to watch. And still to this day, they can't, you know, stop hugging and kissing each other. And as we just heard, Santori grew up in South Philadelphia in a neighborhood that today is known as Bella Vista. 
and he still knows many of the people he grew up with. When you lived in the kind of neighborhood that we lived in, it was a lower middle class, you know, Italian neighborhood, bordering on Irish neighborhoods and Polish neighborhoods. But there was never any mention of money. Uh, So security never was an issue. We just took security for granted. You were alive, you were secure, you know. Uh, It wasn't until I got to art school. Like, I never knew that there was a difference in really classes of people. It never occurred to me because the only people I knew were the people I saw. (laughs) And they were all pretty much like me. It really wasn't until I got into art school that I began to see that there was a place called the Main Line and that these people were maybe different from those people and getting a good job and being secure and getting a paycheck and then moving to the suburbs. I didn't know anything about that stuff. And so it, it never really occurred to me, nor did it hold any interest for me. Santori spent the first 10 years of his life in a family apartment building with relatives and cousins. And then he moved nearby, down the block basically, into a home behind the Fleischer Art Memorial. But of course, I never went in to Fleischer. Of course, you know, the kids I hung out with made fun of people that walked in and out of Fleischer. So I couldn't, you know, go into Fleischer in good conscience. I had to do what everybody else did. We were aware of it and actually spent many a day and night just sitting on the lions outside, you know, the two lions outside of Fleischer and just smoking and talking and just watching people walk in and out. It never occurred to me to go in. Santori began drawing at a young age, and one of his aunts used to buy him art materials. And later on, he found out that his mother actually had been artistic, that she also had talent, but she really didn't encourage him. But at school, it was a different story. The teachers always encouraged me. That was constant, right from the beginning. And it got to the point where I really hated math. Oh, did I hate math. But I never had to do any math. I was always doing a picture, you know, for the math teacher, whatever. Any excuse to just keep drawing and painting. And all that drawing and painting that Santori did led to him getting offered a scholarship to attend art school at the Philadelphia Museum School of Art, which today we know now as the University of the Arts. But interestingly, Santori initially declined the scholarship. When they offered me a scholarship, I said no, because I didn't know anybody that was in college at the time. None of my friends were in college. Many of them had quit school at 16 to go to work. That's what, you know, lots of people did back then. Word got around, and Charlie's English teacher pulled him aside to chat. She said, I'd heard through the grapevine in the school that you were offered a scholarship and you turned it down. And I said, yes, that's true. She said, can I ask you why you turned it down? I said, I don't know. I just turned it down. She said, well, did it occur to you that if you took it, and you didn't like it, you can quit, but it's never going to be offered to you again. That had never occurred to me at the time. So I said, yeah, you're right. So that night, I went home and said to my father, they want to give me a scholarship to art school. What do you think? So his advice was, if you want to go to art school, go to art school. If you don't want to go, don't go. (laughs) It wasn't much in the way of advice, but she was right, so I took it. Santori went on to art school, but said he got more of an art education later in life, hanging out at auction houses. He started collecting Windsor chairs. He's now a leading expert 
on Windsor chairs and is very well known in the antique world. As far as his illustration work, Centauri started his career as a commercial illustrator, which ultimately led to him doing work for advertising agencies and magazines, including some popular ones like TV Guide, as we discussed, Saturday Evening Post, Time, Life, and many others. Especially with advertising illustration, there were copywriters that usually wrote copy of, you know, for an ad. And very often, the art directors would say, we'd like you to do a picture of this to accompany the copy. And I would never do that. I said, just give me the copy. What I have to sell you is an opinion, not a pair of hands. I'm not going to draw what you want me to draw. If I could do that, I would do it. But I know myself, and I know that if I said yes, as soon as I started working on it, it would go in a different direction. You wouldn't be happy, and I wouldn't be happy. So if you're willing to give me the project and let me give you my opinion on what it should be visually, then we can work together. If not, maybe you should go to somebody else. And that's really the way it's always been, because I thought to myself right from the beginning that this has to be fun. If it's not fun, I'm going to do something else. And I found that that the only way it could be fun is to be able to say, no, you know, I'll walk away from it. I don't have to have it. I was never interested in security, so it didn't matter. Actually, it was fun in many cases to just say, you know what, I'm not interested in working for you and just, you know, walking away. That was as much fun often as doing the job. And that's the way it went. So now I have no excuses for my pictures. My pictures are my decisions. I made all the decisions. They stand or fall on my decisions. And that's the way I like it. Over the years, Santori picked up various awards along the way, including the Society of Illustrators Award of Excellence and the Hamilton King Award. And his work has been shown in various exhibitions and is part of permanent collections at the Museum of Modern Art, the Brandywine River Museum of Art, and the Free Library of Philadelphia. But our retrospective of his work at Woodmere is the first of its kind. It brings together Santori's early commercial illustration work, together with the work he's doing today, which is illustrations for children's books. These books are justly acclaimed around the world, and they are very special. I enjoyed redoing a classic. Of course, there's lots of interpretations out there, and you want to see if you can create something that's unique, that's not like what's been done before, And there's also a practical side to it, too, because from the sales point of view, it's easier for salespeople to sell a book that has a high profile, like Snow White or, you know, The Wizard of Oz. There are lots of pitfalls, too, and and this is where the challenge is, like with The Wizard of Oz. There's a lot of expectation. People have seen the movie. They love the movie. They have a, you know, an idea of what Dorothy should look like and the lion and the tin man and you know what have you. And so you can't disappoint. You really don't want to give them what they know. You want to give them something that they like even better. And that, to me, is an enjoyable challenge. This gets to the heart of Santori's unique talent. He gets us to think in new ways 
about old stories, about classics that we've heard a million times, but are worth rethinking. They are worth reinterpreting for our own time and for our own age. For example, when you see his rendering of Snow White in the exhibition, it's not the Disney Snow White. It's not the Snow White you thought you knew. The same goes for his illustration of Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. She is not Judy Garland. And you can see this theme, this reinterpreting the classics throughout so much of Santori's work. And Santori has illustrated an impressive number of books, including classics such as Alice in Wonderland, Peter Rabbit, Aesop's Fables, The Little Mermaid, The Velveteen Rabbit, Paul Revere's Ride, and so many others. He's also written and illustrated some of his own books, which have become classics in their own right. Uh, There's William the Curious and A Stowaway on Noah's Ark. And we're going to hear from Santori right now about his process, how he approaches illustrating children's books. The projects kind of unfold in their own time and in their own way. If I'm starting a book, I'll just start reading the book over and over and over again. I just keep reading the book. And then eventually I'll take a little pad and I'll be reading the book and making doodles. And I've made this analogy once before. It's almost like a Ouija board. You put your hand on a Ouija board and it takes you where you want to go, really. And I like to think of it as choreographing. You know, I choreograph a book. I sort of think of it like ballet. And it is very interesting that Santori himself sees that this element of choreography that developed in his work derives from time that he spent working in the theater in the late 1950s. I had some friends that were actors, so I wanted to try my hand at being an actor. And I had a really bad stammering problem. I couldn't speak at all. From when I was a child all through school, couldn't say much. Bad stammering problem. And if, you know, if somebody made fun of me, I'd start a fight with them. So I thought it was a real challenge to be able to get on a stage. And what I discovered, which was so interesting to me, was when I was another character and not me, I had no problem speaking. You know, I was on a stage, but I was somebody else. It wasn't Charlie. I wasn't exposing myself. And so that was a revelation, actually. But What the whole experience taught me, I spent maybe a year and a half or so doing various plays or being part of various plays, but I got a real feel for the way plays are directed and the way the proscenium stage sets up. And a book sets up pretty much like the proscenium stage. So it was a real education. Without me at the time really ever realizing it, I never thought it would become really part and parcel of my illustration, but it has. While Santori spent the first 20 years or so of his career doing commercial illustration, which mostly involved creating single images, he found a new challenge in book illustration. It was a longer narrative, and you realize that the whole message, the entire story doesn't have to be summed up in one picture. It can be strung out, and it would be like composing a ballet or a piece of music. So you could have gentle pictures, you could have intriguing pictures, you could have high pictures and low pictures, and pictures that crescendo. And that was a revelation. Nothing really bores me more than looking at a book where when you see the picture on the first page and you keep turning the page, it's pretty much the same picture over and over and over again. 
And another key part of Santori's process is the time he spends researching. Besides going online, of course, he keeps many reference books on hand in his studio, and he has filing cabinets full of clips. When I'm not actually doing the doodles, I'm doing really research on the project. And when the research starts to feed you with mainly possibilities, what you could use in these pictures, what you shouldn't use in these pictures. And it begins to inform you and teach you so that you're learning really about the subject. So I'll spend, if it's a complicated book, I'll spend the first year doing the drawings. And when I finished all the drawings, I usually work one, two, three in order. When I finish all the drawings and it's time to start the paintings, I go back to painting number one. Now I'm not satisfied with painting number one because I've been with the characters now for a year and I know them better than I did in the beginning. I was just getting to meet them then. Now I know them. I've been traveling with them. So I usually change the drawing. I do the first drawing over again before I start a painting. And that's usually the way the process goes. The result of Centauri's involved and nuanced process has led to masterful children's book illustrations, which you can see up close, immerse yourself in the extraordinary virtuosity and detail of his work at Woodmere. And as for some of Charles Centauri's closing impressions on the retrospective and his career, we're going to hear from him right now. It's a very scary thing to see your life up on a wall, you know, <laughs> because it could be a really exciting thing, but then what if it goes up on the wall and you look at it and you say, oh, God, hmm. that's always the gamble. It's hard for people to comprehend how many hours you need to put in to be really proficient at what you do thousands of hours. Nobody wants to do that. When they say, I don't know what I want to do, is really not the question. I think the question is, what would I consider doing that I would have to spend thousands of hours doing to get good at? And ask yourself, you know, if you're willing to spend that time. Many a times I've really sat here and said to myself, where would I like to be right now? And I can't think of any place else that I would like to be than here. I don't want to be sitting on the beach looking at the sunrise. I mean, it's nice occasionally, but really I'd rather be here working. You indulge yourself in what you enjoy doing. You keep doing it, and then one day you look up and look, there's a whole bunch of stuff I've done. And so much of all that wonderful stuff made by Charles Santori, the artist, we should say, is on view in the retrospective that I hope you will come see through May 13th at Woodmere Art Museum. And everything we've talked about today is on view on Woodmere's website. You can go to the exhibition page or you can go to the collection pages of our website where we have a special pull-down menu with a video dedicated to Charles Santori's TV Guide illustrations. In addition to the exhibition, we're holding a number of special events lectures, music performances with the Arpeggio Jazz Ensemble and Warren Ori, as well as a circus performance in our galleries. So don't miss it. Be sure to join us. Log on to woodmereartmuseum.org for more information. Of course, follow us on social media. Tell us what you think. 
post your Instagram pictures, and subscribe to this podcast.